Shri Dhamadarjanani by Shiva Ram Swami, Chapter 12 Everything Ends in Transcendental Bliss, Part 2 Nanda Maharaj embraced his son and put the question to him. Dear boy, these ladies say that your mother is very sad. Will you go and appease her like a dutiful son? Krishna looked up at his father and replied assertively, No, I will not. From now on, I will remain always with you. The witty wives of Nanda's elder brothers asked good-naturedly, If you do not go to your mother, then whose breast will you suckle? But Krishna was ready with his answer. I am a big boy now. I will drink more milk from the white monarch of my father's cows, just like I did today. The ladies were not done. Surely they could find some chink in Krishna's armor. Then, with whom will you play? Who can entertain you in those ways in which your mother is most adept? Krishna looked at his father and replied, My father, I will play with my father. He is the emperor of all gamesters. Then looking in the direction of Balaram, Krishna added, And I will play with my brother as well. One noble woman asked, What about your brother's mother? Krishna's face seemed to flush slightly, and tears welled in his eyes. I will not go to her. She abandoned me, and as a result, I was shackled all day. Since their afternoon meeting, Krishna had forgiven Balaram for having not been present when Yashoda bound him. His brother had argued, I did not want to leave, but what could I do? Mother forced me to go with her. If I did not, she may have tied me to her as you were tied to a mortar. Am I any stronger than you? Balaram was Krishna's greatest ally, shelter, and source of inspiration. Krishna could not long harbor a grudge against him. And it was true, even though Balaram was older than Krishna, he was still a child and bound by his mother's wishes. Barohini could have stayed thought Krishna with a childish awkwardness. He knew well Rohini's influence over his mother and the punishments that her influence could have saved him from in the past. She could have rescued me. Krishna's rebuff made Rohini tearful. She loved Krishna more than her own son. Searching for some way to uproot his stubbornness, she appeared to Krishna's love for Yashoda. Oh, my son, how can you be so heartless and cause your mother such pain? Even Dhruva Maharaj forgave his stepmother, as did Lord Ramachandra. Why can you not find it in your heart to do so? The authority of his father's support fueled Krishna's huff. Turning from Rahini to Nandaraj, Krishna buried his face in his father's silky soft beard. The court was hushed. No one knew how to unearth Krishna's peak. Furthermore, they feared trying, lest Krishna make the volunteer a target of his ire. Rohini whispered to Sankarshan, Bring your little brother to me. Balaram obediently slipped off his mother's lap and sauntered to the king, where he took hold of Krishna's hand and gave it a gentle tug. But Krishna was not to be so easily subdued. Although Balaram was the presiding deity of false ego, 
Krishna was the origin of Balaram, hence a false ego. When Krishna wanted to be stubborn, no one could be more stubborn than he. Shaking off his brother's hand, Krishna wrapped his arms tightly around his father's neck and nestled deeper into Nanda's lap. Casting a noose of pleading looks at his father, Krishna bound the heart of the Gopas king and brought him completely under his control. Nanda Maharaj could not resist. His wife was generally Krishna's favorite. Therefore, on the rare occasion that Krishna was partial to his father, Nanda Maharaj could not help but indulge his son in the way that the young gopis would transgress laws of morality to fulfill Krishna's adolescent lust. His parents could not help but ignore guidelines of good parenting to satisfy his childish demands. Nanda embraced Krishna tightly, his uncontrolled tears raining upon his son. The two were the picture of parental bliss, and for a moment, all present forgot the plight of Yashoda, reveling in the sight of the eternal father and son. But Nanda Maharaj did not forget his wife. With Krishna close to his heart, the king could sense that the boy still longed for the sanctuary of his mother's tender warmth and soft breasts, the comfort of her camphored breath and cooing voice. For Krishna, there was no embrace like that of Mother Yashoda, and there was no love to replace hers. Free from the slightest trace of envy, the king devised an elixir to conjure up Krishna's suppressed affection for his mother. Holding Krishna at arm's length, and in the tone of royal proclamation, Nanda Maharaj raised a slightly threatening hand and said, Son, say the word, and I will give that woman a suitable thrashing. As king of Raj, I cannot tolerate injustice. If a sin is perpetrated by my own kith and kin, I must act on it, lodge a complaint, and then just see what I'll do. Nanda's strategy worked like a charm. The very thought of anyone striking his mother obliterated Krishna's huff and brought tears to his eyes. Catching hold of Nanda's threatening hand, Krishna shouted, No! No, you cannot! Nanda Maharaj changed his menacing tone to one of indifference. Krishna's pout has been routed, but the fire of his affection needed to be fueled. As a perfect strategist, the monarch unfolded the second phase of his scheme. Appearing to ponder Madhya Shoda's past conduct, and a present isolation, Nanda said, You are right, my son. Someone who puts another in mortal danger should not be surprised if fate meets out the same punishment to them. The ladies of the court gasp. In their wisdom, they quickly assessed Nanda Maharaj's plan and readily assisted in its unfolding. And for his part, Krishna understood what his father had implied. If his mother did not survive this crisis, then she deserved to embrace her fate, which may be death. Krishna sat erect, half crying, half commanding, and again called out, No! That cannot be! Never! Krishna's voice was shrill. It resonated off the walls, pierced through the earth, 
and entered the abode of Yamaraj, where the superintendent of death took it as an eternal edict. Krishna would later repeat that edict to Arjuna, Name Bhakta Pranashati. Upon seeing Krishna struggle with the thought of losing his mother, Nanamaraj struggled to contain his pleasure. The residing tide of separation from Yashoda that kept Krishna at bay, with the embarkment of anger, was finally breached. At the first gust of affection stream, it weakened the surrounding structure, causing the entire embankment to suddenly collapse into the formidable torrent of Krishna's love. My mother! My mother! Where is my mother? Yashoda rose to her feet. She could hear her son, but his voice was not heard by her ears. It arose from her heart. Yashoda's heart was one with her son's. Whatever he felt, she felt. His indifference was like the full force of a winter storm. His yearning, a sudden blossoming of spring. Prema, however, would not let her move. Indeed, it forced her to sit again and wait. But she would not have to wait long. Utter dependence on Yashoda erupted within Krishna. Anxious to see his mother, he jumped off his father's lap and frantically cried, Where is my mother? I have to go there. Where is she? Bewildered by his own love, Krishna ran to Rohini for shelter, repeatedly crying, Where is mother? Where is mother? Rohini embraced the child, momentarily treasuring his touch, then wiping his tears with her veil, she comforted him and replied, Do not fret. Come with me. I will take you to your mother. After what seemed like eternity, Yashoda saw her door open cautiously and silently. Only Rohini and Krishna were so bold. It was both. Rohini was holding Krishna's hand, but not for long. As soon as he saw the outline of his mother through his tears, Krishna ran weeping to Yashoda, climbed into her lap, and wrapped his arms around her neck. The aggregate of all the happiness in the world, when multiplied a million times, could not match a drop of the ecstasy that Mother Yashoda felt with Krishna in her arms. And if the aggregate of all the love in the world was multiplied a million times, it could not match a drop of the love that Krishna felt from Yashoda's embrace. He was never-ending bliss personified, and she was boundless love personified. Just as bliss can be tasted in proportion to the amount of love one has, love can be experienced in proportion to one's ecstasy. Thus mother and son perfectly complemented each other's divine sentiments. Holding each other heart to heart, they both felt complete, for each was a half of the whole that was their union. With Yashoda's chin resting on Krishna's head and holding him ever so tightly, neither mother nor son, could feel the difference between each other. It was as if they had become one. Yet in that oneness was the happiness that each felt from the other's love. For Krishna, his mother was a waterfall of ecstasy in which cascades of affection bathed his being, nourishing his own bliss. The waters of that cascades were the united streams of her tears and breast milk, and its splashing sounds were the cooing and murmuring that emanated from her beautiful lips. 
the goddesses of separation and union became lotuses that flowed with the cascading waters and fell from Krishna's head to his lotus feet, blossoming there with prayers for eternal service. The chirping of waterfowl were the pleasant sounds made by Yashoda's friends who crowded the doorway to share their queen's delight. Yet as wondrous as Yashoda's relief at being united with her son, as horrendous was the thought of being separated from him again. The pain of the last few hours had left an indelible scar on Yashoda's heart, a scar that would not heal. Only by holding Krishna could the lifeblood of her love be stemmed, and that hope that she would not wilt away secured. But Krishna should be fed. While his godhood could subsist on love alone, his childhood required Yashoda's breast milk. Since the queen was too lost in being with Krishna, wise Rahini had to console Yashoda with sweet words and reminded her that Krishna was hungry. It did not take much reminding when Yashoda heard the words, Will you not feed your son? She immediately came to external consciousness and like a dutiful mother she pleased Krishna with her breast milk. When a honeybee collects pollen from a flower, that flower loses some of its natural luster. But when Krishna drank the nectar of his mother's breast, her face and body regained their natural beauty and effulgence. Rahini said, Queen, you must now dine with your son, for he has been picking at his supper without your presence. Hearing these words, Yashoda opened her wide eyes and saw that her clever maidservants had set a dinner table and that her most intimate friends were waiting to eat with her. At that time, Balaram rushed to Yashoda's side, and the queen embraced him with her free arm, almost falling into a second reverie of bliss. With Rohini's help, Yashoda finally rose to her feet with Krishna still in her arms, and took her seat at the table. Making her thigh Krishna's sitting place, she partook of her meal. For every morsel that Krishna ate from her blessed hand, she would take an equal amount. Krishna said, Mother, eat more. She replied, If you eat more, I will match you. And so it went, as they had done in days past. It was an intimate meal. Yashoda, her two sons, and three gopi friends, with Rohini and two maids serving them in the privacy of Yashoda's quarters. The supper was not just a meal. It was a celebration of reconciliation between mother and son. But Yashoda Devi's ordeal was far from over. Whereas Krishna, a little child, could be won over by loving affection, her husband and the people of Gokul would not so easily forget that she had endangered their prince, or at least so she thought. I can hardly face my king. What will he say, he who trembles just to remember the threat to his son that was Putana? Yashoda feared the chagrin of her husband. She feared the censure of the villagers. But right now those fears had to be put aside to serve Krishna. At the conclusion of the meal, Yashoda washed her hands, feet and mouth, and carefully did the same for her little boy. Krishna and Balaram bade farewell, and Rohini took her son to their apartment and put him to sleep. Then, along with her friends, Yashoda lovingly put Krishna to rest in the same bed from which he rose that morning to inaugurate an extraordinary pastime, a pastime by which he had earned the name 
Damodar. As Krishna's head lay on an oversized silk pillow, he asked sleepily, Mother, will you tell me a bedtime story? Yashoda stroked Krishna's forehead. Oh, son, which story would you like to hear? Tell me how little Druva went to the forest. Listen, little Lotus, and I will tell you about the great-grandson of the Creator. I'm listening. Once, Druva's stepson insulted the prince, so he went to the forest to search out Lord Narayana. Krishna murmured, He came to Yamuna's bank? Yes, not far from here. He only ate leaves with a vow to be the master of the universe. Then what happened? The great saint Narada appeared before Druva and initiated him. Then, with the power of his Diksha Mantra, Dhruva was able to see Narayan and become the ruler of the universe. Will I get a Diksha Mantra too? When you're a little older. And will Narada be my guru too? If not Narada, then his representative. Half asleep but assertive, Krishna whispered, I want to be initiated by Narada. Yes, dear, whatever you want. With the name of Narada on his lips, Krishna fell asleep. He fell into a sleep that was like the Yamuna's lazy waves, gradually carrying him into the pastime land of dreams, where he was met by Narada Muni and worshipped in various ways befitting the Supreme Personality of Godhead and with songs like the sacred Dhammarastaka. For three days, Yashoda Devi remained in her chambers, afraid to appear before the king and his court. Rohini acted as her proxy in managing palace affairs and supervising Krishna while he was playing outside. But sympathetic to his mother's plight, Krishna spent most of his time indoors. Besides, it was rainy weather. At the start of breakfast on the fourth day, Nandaraj addressed his son. My boy, your mother is sulking and has thus deprived us of her excellent services. Please go to her, and only in the way that you know how, ask her to once again grace my court with her august presence. We miss her terribly. Taking the order of his father on his head, Krishna ran off to his rooms. Soon thereafter, he emerged with the queen, holding the helm of her dress, drawing her forward with sweet words and gestures. They were like two monsoon clouds, one large, one small, both quenching the thirsty Chakata bird eyes of those present. Mother and son stopped at the entrance of the dining hall. Yashoda's face flushed with embarrassment, her eyes fixed at her feet. There was an awkward silence, then Krishna spoke. Mother, this palace is empty without you. Very self-conscious, Shishoda Devi scratched the floor with her toes and the place that her tears were falling. Nandamaraj mentally scolded his wife. Nandarani, it was a mistake to punish your son in the way that you did. But then Gargamuni's prophetic words arose in his mind. This child of yours will be as good as Narayana. He appears in order to protect the people and enable them to flourish. 
Again the king thought, If Krishna is so powerful, then my wife's conduct must be under higher authority and beyond reproach. Concluding that her pain and days of exile were sufficient punishment, Nanda Maharaj saw no need to censure his wife. Instead, in a very kindly voice, he said, O goddess, whose glories are sung throughout this land and beyond, O you who are maternal affection personified, Yashoda raised her face, expecting some words of reprimand, but there were none. O Devi, for three days we have not eaten excellent preparations, but without the touch of your lotus hand the best food is like dusty diamonds whose true merit cannot shine forth. Will you not satisfy the leaders of this land by serving them breakfast in the most special way that only you know how? No matter what Rohini cooks, your whimsical son will not eat because it has not been served by you. Please save him from wasting away, and thus save us all, who live only for him. Yashoda's eyes welled with tears, her heart flooded with bliss, and the symptoms of ecstasy danced in every limb of her body. Gradually, a golden radiance spread from Yashoda and engulfed the entire palace. The grand hall was hushed. It appeared to all present that the entire palace was becoming transformed into the realm of love. The walls, ceilings, floors, furniture, and even the Brajbasi's bodies seemed to be composed of the very substance that flowed unrestrictedly from Yashoda's being. Similarly, the hearts of everyone present felt an upsurge of love for Krishna, an upsurge they have never before known. Indeed, if this special love for Krishna had defined their identities, then everyone in the room would have thought, I am Madhya Shoda. But because reason dictates that such a thing was not possible, they understood that by her influence, they are feeling a love for Krishna similar to hers. Moreover, wherever the Brajmasis looked, they saw that even objects such as the chandelier or a table, everything within Nandamaraj's palace, indeed, even the palace itself, was made of the same love that they felt. Everything was soft, golden, warm, and above all, loving. We are in the land of love, they thought. They were. But they were not in the land of just any kind of love. Gokul was a land of paternal love. And Krishna, who wanted his kinsmen to appreciate the grandeur of his mother, directed the Rajmasis within their hearts. Thus all those present realized that they were simply players in the drama of Nanda and Yashoda's ever-unfolding love for him and of his eternally expanding love for them. But more than just players, the Rajvasis and their very existence were also manifestations of that love. The Rajvasis provided the diversity of loving exchange that fed Krishna's unlimited and insatiable thirst for affection. Nanda and Yashoda were like the wellspring of love from which poured an endless stream of nectar that collected in the fountains of Gokul. As that fountain overflowed, Prema cascaded through the Rajvasis, who were like many figurines decorating the fountain edge. And Krishna was a black swan in the channel below that waterfall of love, swimming from one cascade to the next, or sometimes to many at once, bathing in streams of nectar and tasting lotus stems of ecstasy that grew from them. Lost to this unparalleled vision experience, or whatever unprecedented thing that it was, 
the Brajmasi's ecstasy soared. There were tiny birds carried higher and higher through the firmaments of bliss by the unprecedented and forceful currents of love. Then softly, gently, those winds subsided, and the Rajvasis felt themselves gliding back to Gokul, to Nanda Bhavana, to the dining hall where they had met by a sound that resembled the concert of cuckoos. Here is a lovely vegetable dish. It is just to your liking. Please eat this rice, topped with fresh ghee. As if opening their eyes, although their eyes had been open, the Rajvasis saw Yashoda Devi moving from one seat to another, serving one preparation after another. As she did, Chutananda's words, whatever food Yashoda touched glowed with a special golden splendor, the splendor of her love. Tasting those foods, the Rajvasis savored Yashoda's love for her son, and they relished it with unprecedented delight. The Rajvasis were lost to the singular atmosphere that continued to pervade the palace, and so at first they appeared to eat in silence, although within themselves roared the Sankirtan of Krishna's names, Govinda Dhamadar Madhava. Thus when Nanda's courtiers eventually did address each other, they spoke in songs that praised Krishna and his parents, songs like, Yashumati Nandana Brajabaranagara Gokula Ranjana Kana As the gopas and gopis became outwardly enlivened, they conversed, the words being solely comprised of Krishna's names. It was in this way that each one perfectly understood what the other had said. Among those divine names was Damodar, Krishna's eternal name, newly revealed by this pastime. And from that day on, the Rajvasis, and especially the ladies of Raj, would call to Krishna with humorous delight by saying, O Damodar, come here. O Damodar, where have you been? In the days following the reconciliation of Gokul's royal family, the Rajvasis continued to give moral support to both the queen and her darling son. While gopis and gopas were always eager to spend time with Krishna, they now had additional reason to do so. They hungered to help heal the wounds caused by Yashoda and Krishna by the Damodar affair. The majority of the callers were gopi acquaintances, friends, or relatives of Yashoda and Rohini. These ladies were like honeybees, attracted by Krishna's irresistible sweetness. His smile, features, speech, his everything. Indescribably attractive to the senses, mind, and heart. Everything he was or did was a novel intoxicant, and every moment with Krishna was a festival of indescribable joy. And just as he completely mesmerized the Rajvasis, Krishna was completely mesmerized by them. Although he was the original eternal being, the unbounded love of the gopis appeared as an unprecedented delight that both captivated him and brought him under its control, hence their control. He who controls great demigods like Brahma and Shiva was now a plaything of the Rajvasis and was fully immersed and entirely lost to that identity, relishing every moment of it. Who then can estimate the good fortune of the Rajvasis not to speak of Nanda Maharaj and Queen Yashoda. 
By submitting himself to the loving whims of the gopis, Krishna made it known that he is absolutely controlled by the Brajvasi's unconstrained affection. Thus he exhibited pastimes that confound even the residents of Ayodhya. What to speak of the denizens of Vaikuntha or the material planets below? Whenever guests would come, Krishna would either stop or look up from his play to see whether the caller had brought gifts. And they did. But gifts for which Krishna would have to first display some enchantment. A graceful gopi guest would show Krishna a tray of sweets and say, O Gopal, look at these tasty treats. And Krishna would answer, May I please have one? To which she would reply, You may have them all, but first you have to equal the hard work I put into making them. What must I do? Please dance for us, and I shall give you half a manohar ladu. Why only half? Why not a whole one? Dear boy, then if you dance nicely, you'll get the other half as well. One is for the effort, and the other is for the quality. Hearing these words, Krishna nodded his head in assent. And as the gopis clapped their hands, he tried to imitate the professional dancers of his father's court. Krishna was the picture of childish innocence. His awkward movements and absorbed countenance drew his gopi audience further into the ocean of loving mellows. And a while he remained fully aware of it, the movement of every atom of his creation, he simultaneously forgot it all in the behavior and identity of a little boy. He was God, but by the love of his devotees, he thought that he was a little boy, another child of a cowherd village. As the Rajbasis were ignorant of his opulence, so was he. Gopal, please sing the mantras of your dance. Krishna carefully mouthed, Ho dik tam tam kita kita kana kai. But he could not coordinate his singing and dancing, and losing his balance, he stopped, confused. But the gopis were enchanted by his effort, and with sweet words they encouraged him to try again, and so he did. For he was like a puppet moving to the strings of their love. Krishna's expression reflected the intensity of his effort to both sing and dance. And although his movements were clumsy and his intonation vague, they appeared to the gopis like the rolling and clapping of ocean waves. When Krishna finally managed to coordinate his steps with his words, he smiled at his audience, thus melting their hearts with his captivating charm. The performance over, Krishna looked up, expectantly at the tray of ladus as the gopis clapped and called out, Jai! Jai! Pleased to no end by his performance, the gopis placed Krishna on her lap and personally fed him a sweet, while herself relishing the sweetness of his touch. At another time, a gopi would ask Krishna to sing, and by the encouragement of others, he would take in a deep breath and repeat songs he had heard from his mother like, Gokula Patikula Tilaka Swam Asiha, Krita Sukrita Raja Rachika, Sukha Raja Nayanandi Samiha, Anand Bhava Janma Mahotsava, Nandita Gopi Samraj, Putanika Muti Nava Mangala Krita Valita Gokulraj. Although Krishna's voice failed to reach high and low notes or reflect the right intonation and melody, it was still like honey 
dripping into the gopis' ears to their hearts, intoxicating them with its sweet effect. When Krishna failed to reach a high note, he cast a glance of uncertainty at the gopis, who encouraged him in different ways, clapping their hands or smiling. Reassured, Krishna would continue his performance, singing according to the gopis' desire. His chubby hands and roving eyes attempted to express the meaning of the song, and when the spirit stirred him, like a professional performer, Krishna stepped forward and raised his voice to its limit, thus bringing tears to the eyes of all. As always, Krishna would be rewarded with either a half or an entire sweetmeat, which the gopis would place in his lotus mouth with their lotus hands. And when the gopis' fingers touched his lips, a current of ecstasy would course through their beings, intensifying their pleasure and making them hanker for more. In an attempt to retain his company and to restrain him from leaving for play, Madhya Shoda and her friends would request Krishna, O little Kirtaniya, please bring the measuring pot from the kitchen. When addressed thus, Krishna was pleased to be entrusted with responsibility, and he would scamper to the kitchen and retrieve the pot, carrying it on his head as gopis would do. Well, almost. Although Krishna raised the pot without difficulty, placing it on his head was another thing. The gopis giggled to see him struggle with the vessel, casting happy glances at each other and back at him. When Krishna had succeeded, he wiggled his fingers to reach the mouth of the pot, but wasn't able to do so. His arms were too short. In an attempt to secure the pot, Krishna stretched his arms, and then his limbs, and even stood on his toes. O oh, Damodar, you look like Lord Varaha, lifting the earth. His chin tucked in his chest, Krishna replied, This is more difficult, but I will succeed, because I am stronger than Lord Varaha. And succeed he did, almost. Krishna managed to bring the pot to the gopis. But try as he might, he was unable to safely remove it from his head without mother's help. Thank you, dear, said Yashoda. You are so strong. Krishna beamed at the success of his undertaking and crossed his arms, clenched his fist, and thumped his upper arms in a way that he has seen professional wrestlers do. I am stronger than Lord Varaha. I am stronger than Lord Shesha. Taking his boast as their cue, the gopis challenged, If you are so strong, can you lift your mother's chauki? Krishna turned towards the kitchen and the low seat on which his mother would cook and churn butter. If I can hold planets, why could I not lift a little seat? And while it was true that merely by a partial expansion of himself, Krishna held up universes, what to speak of planets, in the presence of Gopi's overwhelming conception of him as a little boy, his unlimited strength was sapped. When he called on his godly opulences, they could not manifest even a little bit. His strength, knowledge, and renunciation were subdued by the Gopi's love in the way that a snake is charmed by its master. So when he went to lift the chauki, Krishna could raise one end, but not the whole thing. Unwilling to admit defeat, he tried to lift it widthwise, then lengthwise, all to no avail. 
This seat repeatedly slipped back to the ground with a thud. And while the chalky could not have made itself lighter to facilitate Krishna, it refused to do so, thinking, This boy had caused the queen so much embarrassment. Why should I help him? Frustrated in his attempt, and embarrassed by being less than Varaha or Shesha, Krishna silently shed tears of anger and finally kicked the seat in disappointment. Oh, poor boy, crooned the gopis in sympathy. That chalky must be fixed to the floor. Do not cry. Seeing her husband entering the main gate, Yashoda intercepted her son's impending tantrum. Dear Krishna, the king is now returning home. Quickly take your father's house shoes to him. Rohini added, What's heavier than the footwear of a Vaishnava? We know that if you could lift that, you could have easily lifted the chauki. Krishna's countenance changed at this escape from humiliation. He looked up with a teary-eyed smile and said, I will lift the shoes and take them to father. One who can lift the shoes of a Vaishnava can lift planets. And so the Supreme Lord, whose feet are worshipped throughout the three worlds and beyond, took his father's slippers in his hands and clumsily but carefully held them to his chest, eager to meet Nanda Maharaj at the entrance. Krishna scurried past the gopis to meet his father in the grand hall. When Nanda Maharaj saw his son approach, he stopped. Wiping away tears of love, the king savored the sight of his little son holding the slippers with intense concentration while making his way down the grand stairs. Krishna was the embodiment of childish innocence and beauty and sweetness. Nandaraj looked to his wife, standing at the top of the stairs. They exchanged glances exclusive to the parents of God. O goddess, you have brought inestimable good fortune to this world by bearing the sun. I bow to you. O king, in the millennia to come, sages will worship you as the father of one who is equal to the Lord. Glories to you, to whom saints will say, Shutam apare shmitam itare bharantam anye bhajantum bhavabhitaha aham iha nandam bhande yasyalinde param brahma. Let others fearing material existence study the Vedas, Smriti and Mahabharata. But I shall worship Nandamaraj, in whose courtyard is crawling the supreme Brahman. Nandamaraj smiled at his wife as his son approached. Devi, do not try to deceive me. I know your glories. Neither Lord Brahma, nor Lord Shiva, nor even the goddess of fortune, who is always the better half of the Supreme Lord, can attain the Lord, the deliverer from this material world, such mercy as received by you. The greatest saints will record this truth and the greatest scriptures. Nemamvrinchona bhavo nashirapyangasamshaya Prasadam Leberia Gopi Yatat Prapya Vimukti Dat. 